The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Good evening. My name is Jen Chen, and I'm speaking tonight on I'm Not My Ethnicity. I've been married to my best friend, Peter, since 1996, and with our beloved teenage son, we attend Lighthouse Community Church in Torrance, California. And as you can see, I recently graduated with my MABC from the Master's University, and I'm ACBC certified. Uh, prior to that, I have obtained my clinical psychology degree, as well as my Master's in Marriage and Family. And they are from two separate Christian institutions in Southern California. So I've been providing therapy since 1996, but wasn't truly introduced to biblical counseling until 2011. Tonight, I'm going to share with you a bit about my personal experience as well as my personal experience with ethnicity. And in the professional section, I'm going to have some extra biblical material. And it's not because I'm an integrationist, but more or that I buy into psychological theories or interventions, but more so that you are more aware of what's out there and some of the influences that might be on some of your more psychologized counselees. It's very clear to me that scripture is sufficient and authoritative. We'll also take a brief look at a biblical perspective on ethnicity. And finally, we'll look at how biblical counseling can speak into ethnicity and culture, because we know that all of our counselees are influenced by their context. Now, since I'm speaking on I'm not my ethnicity, I thought it would be helpful to define a few key terms. So first of all is ethnicity, and it is a named human population with myths of common ancestry, shared historical memories, one or more elements of common culture, a link with the homeland, and a sense of solidarity among at least some of its members. And then we also have culture, and culture is patterns of ideas, attitudes, values, lifestyle habits, and traditions shared by a group of people and transmitted from one generation to the next. Now we know that variation occurs within a culture and that a culture is dynamic, meaning that it does change over time. And ethnicity is a specific type of culture. And we know that at the heart of culture is worldview. And as biblical counselors, we know that worldview impacts everything. And I have these three eyes that I learned from David Tallison of an analytic model. And so we have information or description, and that's basically the data. And sometimes it's in the form of a problem. And we know from the Christian scholar Cornelius Van Til that no, there are no brute facts, that there is no neutrality even within facts. Then we have interpretation or theory. There is a narrative for explaining the data and the problem, the information. And then thirdly, based on the theory and the description, there's going to be interventions or prescriptions. And these are attempts to solve or address the problems. And at the heart of this is our worship. Our worldview is going to affect what our worship is, or what Dr. Ernie Baker calls worthship. It's what we treasure, what we value, where we place our hope, and it may also be what we inordinately desire or fear. So why don't we go ahead and jump into my personal experience with ethnicity. 
My personal background is Japanese American, and I'm considered a Yonsei, which is fourth generation. So on my mother's side, her maternal grandparents came from, uh, from Japan, and so they're considered first generation. And then her parents were second generation, she's third, and, and therefore I'm considered fourth. And being Japanese American has been not only a source of shame and alienation, but also one of anger and pride. I grew up in a middle class, lower middle class town, where I was one of only a handful of Asians or Asian Americans. And two specific events in my childhood made me aware of my ethnicity as something as possibly not a good thing. The first was when I was in kindergarten, and I was chased down the street by an older child, and he was swinging a, a garden hose at me and yelling, Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor. And I, at the time, had no idea what he was talking about, but I felt completely humiliated. And I remember going crying to my parents and asking, what's Pearl Harbor? And they told me that, oh, the Japanese had burned that had bombed Pearl Harbor during World War II, but not to worry about it, and that I needed to be proud that I was Japanese. Another thing was in junior high, where there was a boy that day after day, he would follow me down the hallway, and he would start to slant his eyes and bow at me and kind of ching-chong, ching-chong at me, and everybody around me would laugh, and I would just feel horrified. And this was the only time in my life where I actually became physically aggressive. One day I just pushed him because I just couldn't take it anymore. And it didn't stop him. It didn't make me feel better. And again, I told my parents, and it was back to the, well, just be proud that you're Japanese and just ignore him. There was also mainstream culture around me. And this will date me a little, but there was not the internet at the time. And so media was magazines, television, movies. The standards of beauty at that time were more of a blonde hair, blue-eyed, thin. Um, and so in my young mind, I thought, oh, there's no way I'm ever going to find romance. There's no one that's ever going to like me. And so here's an example from my, my youth that I wanted to play for you. What's happening? Hot stuff. His name is Long Duck Dong. Long Duck Dong. He came down with Grandma and Grandpa Baker. He's an exchange student that's living with her. Well, he's totally resolved. He is not. He is a very sweet boy. Just over four sheets of mattresses after these. I don't suppose it makes any difference to you, but there's a very weird Chinese guy with a mic shrub. So this was something I did not want to be associated. I didn't want to be an other. I didn't want to be a nerd. I didn't want to be socially awkward, though now I embrace the nerd title. And then there was this value of Japanese culture that really values fitting in. So in the US, they have this saying that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But in the, in the Japanese culture, it's the nail that sticks out gets pounded down. When you add this to me being a teen at the time, that really added the sense of wanting to fit in and not stand out. So at that point, my childhood, my teenage worldview, my information or data at the time, my ethnicity causes alienation. My interpretation or narrative was that my ethnicity is bad, and so my intervention or solution was to reject my ethnicity as my identity. And my heart worship at the time was people, 
There was this fear of rejection, a desire for belonging, to be approved of, to be considered beautiful. And then my ethnicity became a source of anger and pride. At age 16, in my U.S. history class, I learned about the Japanese-American internment camps from a two-sentence description in the history book. And it was the forced relocation and incarceration of approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry. They were given a week to dispel of their things and take only what they could carry. And unbeknownst to me, this was actually a major event in my family history. My maternal grandparents were married on December 7, 1941. Can anybody tell me the significance of this date? So yes, it was the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed. So their wedding was significant enough that this picture was featured in a history book. So my grandparents were married in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles, the day Pearl Harbor was bombed, and it was cordoned off by the FBI. So my grandmother had to walk five to six blocks in her wedding dress to get to the ceremony. The FBI actually came to the ceremony and removed guests and confiscated all of their wedding gifts. Less than six months later, they would be placed in these relocation camps. It's interesting that due to cultural factors, this was never even shared with me until I asked about it after learning about it in my history class. Another response that my family had was to really distance themselves from Japanese culture, at least externally, so they didn't speak Japanese, you know, they appeared very Western. But nonetheless, Japanese values were very much imparted to me as a child, and especially things like respect for authority, the importance of education, and a strong work ethic. Learning this part of my family history also led me to really dive into my ethnicity in great detail and want to know about my background. And then as a side note, in my teens, I was struggling with some issues and received some secular therapy, both individual and family therapy. And then fast forward to an Asian American psychology class where I realized how in that therapy I'd received that some of my cultural and family values were actually pathologized. Also as part of this class, we discussed this tension of living as this hyphen between Japanese and American. So I'm fourth generation, I don't speak any Japanese, and I was too Americanized to fit into Japan, and at the same time, I never felt like I was fully welcomed into the US society or seen as somebody who could actually be born here. And so at this point, my worldview is information. Others have caused harm to people because of their ethnicity and caused harm to people of my ethnicity. And the interpretation is those people have caused harm are ignorant, selfish, or both. And my solution was to embrace my ethnicity as my primary identity and immerse myself in it and educate myself and others about what happened as well as about racism. And at the time, my worship was my ethnicity. I developed this ungodly pride about my cultural values and felt that they were superior. And I placed my hope in my education and worldly knowledge as the solution to racism. And I still had this fear of alienation from both my Japanese and my American side. 
Then we come to my professional experience with ethnicity and culture. And again, I will be presenting some extra biblical information, not as an integrationist, but my hope is to make you aware again of some of what's out there about ethnicity and culture and how it can impact worldview, as well as my hope is that you would become a little more conscious of your own worldview if you're not already. So fast forward to graduate school. And at that time, I still believed that psychology had the answers to help suffering people. My doctoral dissertation was on multicultural counseling competencies. And the people I surrounded myself with were promoters of social justice. And we focused together on fighting oppression and using scripture as its reasoning. One that I remembered was kind of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so kind of this idea that as on earth, I'm supposed to help God's kingdom come, come in heaven as it is on earth, as in, he, in earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm supposed to somehow fight oppression on earth. And at the time, I had minimal knowledge about hermeneutics and, and lacked a lot of discernment. Thus, I did spend my early 20s and mid-20s a lot fighting social inequalities. First of all, as a sinner, where social equality was my gospel rather than the true gospel. And I had some self-righteousness and judgment. And also as a sufferer, there was pain overseeing oppression and suffering in the world due to ethnicity. And finally, as a saint, as one that hated evil and desired justice, as someone that I wanted to work with whom I believed was the least of these or the most oppressed, and wanting to seek reconciliation between people groups. So one of the areas of expertise that I developed was in what some would consider the fourth force in psychology, which is multicultural psychology. And this follows the other three forces of behaviorism, psychoanalytic, and existential humanistic forces. And the worldview that they take is the information is that there are systematic abuses of power against cultural groups. And their interpretation is that some cultural groups have too much societal power, which they use to define reality and keep resources for their own cultural group. The intervention, some of it would be postmodernism, and another would be social equality. And the worship was reliance on man to fix societal problems. This is the point where I really started to grasp that the worldview of the psychologies is not objective, which started undermining my beliefs in this. And here I pictured a text, the first, the first and second edition, called Even the Rat Was White, a historical view of psychology, and began to see where psychology had been used to try to prove the superiority of particular ethnic groups and particular people groups, rather than being this objective science. And on a related side note, did you know that behavioral scientists routinely publish broad claims about human psychology and behavior in the world's top journals based on samples drawn on what they call weird societies, meaning they're from Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic societies. Also, there is this, this study that, or not study, this article that talks about psychology secrets, that most psychology research done in the U.S. is consistently done on, primarily on college students. 
specifically undergraduate students taking a psychology course. And they do this primarily because of convenience that they're there on the campus where the professors are, the researchers are doing research. It's also because of costs. A lot of times you have to advertise to get research subjects and pay them, whereas students, all you have to do is give them extra credit, and that doesn't cost the researcher everything. And then also tradition. This is the way that it's always been done, and it's been acceptable to the profession and to journals in the past. All right, now coming back to ethnicity and culture, one model I taught was an acculturation model. And here again, we're dealing with worldview. And the way this works is that on this vector, we either have low or high identification with their heritage culture or where they're from, and then a low to high identification with US culture. And so if someone is in this corner, an unconventionality or marginalization, it means they have low identification with both their heritage culture and their US culture versus someone who identifies strongly with US culture as well as with their heritage culture, they're considered bicultural or in this integration square. Someone that only identifies with US culture is considered a simulation and someone that is only identifying with their heritage culture is considered this retainment separation. And so this idea of how two cultures might meet together and where somebody might find their worldview in. In these next slides, I wanted to point out some differences that may exist between two types of cultures, individualistic cultures and collectivistic cultures. And obviously, there's going to be some generalizations. Now, as we go through these, I encourage you to think through which worldview that you tend toward, as well as which ones might reflect more biblical values. And then there may be some things that are more preferential. And so what this slide addresses is the background of individualistic versus collectivistic cultures. So those from individualistic cultures may focus more on progress and believe that we need to have this progressive mentality. The, the economy is typically more of an industrial capitalist one, and they hang their beliefs more on the scientific system. In the collectivistic system, there's more of a focus on tradition and history and the past. The economy tends to be based in an agrarian society, and the beliefs are more kind of in the metaphysical or spiritual realm. Regarding identity, in the individualistic culture, autonomy is very much valued, and the nuclear family is the primary family unit, and goals are determined by the individual. However, in the collectivistic culture, the group identity is vital. A lot of times the extended family is the basic unit of society, and sometimes the extended family will actually live in the household, and the village raises the child as opposed to just the nuclear family. Many times in these types of societies, you'll introduce by your last name first or your family name because that's more important than your individual identity. And we know that cohesion and harmony are valued above individual achievement, and the self is defined in relationship to others. 
Now, this is an infographic done by Yang Lu, and this was a young artist that was from Beijing, but actually lived in Germany for a while. And she titled these East Meets West, and she is basically comparing German society with Chinese society. And I think she makes some rather humorous yet clear comparisons. And as a Japanese American who can sometimes straddle both Western culture and Eastern culture, I can relate to these. At the same time, I have found that some cultures in the Western world, such as African Americans and Latinos, have values in line with the East because of their more collectivistic culture. And then also, my second generation Chinese American and I can attest that there are many differences both between and within many Asian groups. But coming back to Yang Lu, this is the way of life, and in Germany it's more of an individualistic existence versus more of a communal existence in the East. And in the West, the child is a part of the family, versus in the East, it's the center of the family. Sometimes you'll hear terms like it's for the sake of the children or for the next generation when people are making decisions or family decisions. And in the West, the elderly are often out on their own versus in the East, a lot of times grandchildren and children, grandchildren and grandparents see each other on a daily basis, that it's part of their daily life. On this slide, I don't have time to go over everything. But I did want to highlight that in an individualistic culture, they focus more on rights and privilege versus in a collectivistic culture, there's more a sense of duty and obligation. And you'll definitely, I see this clash a lot even today, even as we talk about complementarism and egalitarianism. And so in terms of self-perception, Westerners tend to think of me in terms of capital M, capital E, versus Asians who may think of themselves in smaller terms. In this next slide, I just wanted to highlight more of the idea of hierarchy. And while an individualistic culture focuses on equality, in a collectivistic society, there's more an emphasis on positions in relationships. And it's going to factor in things like ethnicity, social class, age, gender, etc. As Christians, we can understand the responsibility that comes with being higher in the hierarchy versus only seeing an inequity of power. I think about our elders that have to account to God for those that they shepherd rather than just seeing as they have more power and it's not fair. And so in this infographic, we have the boss in the West versus the boss in the East. And on this slide, I wanted to really highlight communication. In an individualistic society, there's a lot more self-assertion, sometimes to the point of aggression that is very expressive in a direct way, versus in a collectivistic culture, there's deference in communication, and it may be seen as passivity and yieldness. It may be even interpreted as low self-esteem versus we see it more as a sign of respect for the other person. On this infographic, as we noticed, individualistic cultures can be very direct versus sometimes people from Asia or collectivistic cultures might not be as linear. Okay that may take time to make their point if they even get to it. 
And sometimes, I, I don't know, for some reason I think of Jesus and the parables with this. Sometimes in certain cultures, if you are too direct, it can be just shaming. It may make the person feel like they've just been bulldozered, or they may decide that you have no social graces. And so something you might want to ask yourself is, would you assume that indirectness is deceitful? In dealing with problems, Westerners tend to take a more direct approach to problem solving, versus in Asia, it can be a little bit more complex. Sometimes the most direct way to deal with problems is ignored, and sometimes the problem is not dealt with for the sake of wanting social harmony or saving face for somebody. Then there's expressing feelings. So when Westerners are unhappy on the inside, it's very apparent on the outside through their body language, their facial exposure, their facial expressions, their tones. Versus in Asia, it can be a little bit harder to tell how somebody might be feeling. Sometimes it could be considered immature or it might be an imposition on someone else to express your feelings. And so honestly, for me, as an Asian who wasn't coached in expressing feelings, to work in an African-American community was really helpful for me to become more outwardly expressive. And in that culture, if you're not expressive enough, they might be suspicious of you and think that you might be hiding someone or hiding something. And so one thing you need to ask yourself as a counselor, that if someone is much more expressive than you or much less expressive than you, what assumptions might you make? On this slide, I just wanted to take the time to just highlight the sense of efficacy or agency that in an individualistic culture where they, you know, kind of did manifest destiny and conquered the frontier, there's a strong sense of personal efficacy and there's a sense of internal control over yourself versus in collectivistic cultures, there may be more of a fatalism or a karma, which is kind of what happened with the relocation camps of kind of Shikata-Ganaya, it can't be helped and we're just going to go with the flow. And so control is more from the outside. And then finally, just for fun, I included this slide on trends. So in Germany, it could be trendy to eat Asian food with Asian utensils, versus in China, it could be pretty trendy to eat Western food with Western utensils. Now moving on to a separate topic, this slide is a comparison of different racial or cultural identity development models in psychology. And the gist is that a person develops from one stage to the next, similarly to Freudian or Erickson stages of development, and you can get arrested development in a particular model and stuck. The way this works and is that first you have a pre-encounter or you're just kind of going along with the flow with the mainstream culture or majority culture, and then you have some sort of encounter with mainstream culture that kind of shakes up your view of yourself and your view of mainstream culture. In stage three, you start to kind of immerse yourself in your own culture and out of mainstream culture and even critique mainstream culture pretty harshly. In stage four, you start to step out a little bit and start to decide for yourself which from either culture kind of are you going to adapt or adopt as some of your values and ways of life. And then we have stage five on this next slide. And I'm not going to cover all of these, but 
the end or maturity according to this model is that there's a strong desire to eliminate all forms of oppression, which is an important motivation of an individual's behavior. And since the models describe my personal experience, I thought growth was reaching this fifth stage. And this is one of the alluring things about psychology, that they sometimes do such a great job of describing your experience. And the person who feels so understood, they start to buy into the whole worldview, hook, line, and sinker. And I think that is why that people without a lot of strong discernment can get caught up into something also like the Enneagram, because it seems to capture and explain their experience and help them out of it. And so my worldview at this point in graduate school is that oppression due to ethnicity exists, and it's society's fault, and now the goal or the intervention is to eliminate all forms of oppression through social justice and empowerment of the weak. And at this point, my heart worship was social equality, and social equality leading to equal opportunities for social status and pay, etc., for everybody. And as someone in my early 20s and mid-20s in this time of idealism in life, I felt full of zeal and purpose. And yet now, if I look, I can see this worldly focus and the lack of a gospel. It's almost like 1 John 2.19, where there's this lust of the eyes, this lust of the flesh, this pride of life, things that I'm still trying to meet. And because of this desire to fight oppression, I ended up working at a community mental health center in the inner city for, for over 15 years. And there I had the opportunity to interact primarily with African Americans and Latinos. And I have heard a lot of horrific stories of trauma based on race, including murder. Now, in my 30s, I actually ended up moving a little more out of the fourth force of psychology and moving towards experience in what the psychological world calls empirically based or evidence-based practices. Then, God rocked my world through biblical counseling, which is its own separate story, and praise God that I now look to scripture as my defining worldview. And so I wanted to take this time to look at a very brief perspective, a biblical perspective on ethnicity. And the word ethnicity is not in the Bible, but race and nation are consistently used. I wanted to talk about the progression of nations in the Bible. And so in creation, we have that man created God's image. Man is created in God's image, and he's mandated to multiply. And then after the fall, in Genesis 10, we have the table of nations, which indicates the existence of ethnicity and also reaffirms the essential unity of human beings as we all descend from Noah. At this point, it's not clear whether diversity here exists as a consequence of the fall or is more just a part of human existence. In Genesis 11 is where we start to see the disunity and dispersion of the nations. Now, nations in the Old Testament is groups of people linked by kinship, land, culture, or government. And in the Bible, the nation specifically or especially refers to those who are not Israelite. And we see in the word that in the Old Testament that all nations rebel against God, including Israel. 
And we see this antithetical relationship with Israel and the nations. And we also see warnings to be separate from the gods of other nations, which are mere idols and not true gods. Then we have the New Testament, where the authors use the nations in a neutral way to refer to those who are not Jews, basically the Gentiles. However, the nations is sometimes used to call attention to sinful or deceived practices. With redemption and Pentecost, we have nationality transcended for unity once again. In Acts 10, we see how God shows Peter, no, yeah, God shows Peter that no nation is common or unclean. And in Colossians 3.11, we have Paul stressing that in Christ, the divisive effects of ethnicity and socioeconomic class are transcended. And why is this? It's because Christ is all and Christ is in all. And so here we have ethnic identity. It's radically and completely transcended through the gospel. That the believer's highest allegiance is now owed to Christ. And every other loyalty, including our ethnicity, is thereby totally subordinated to being in Christ. Okay, but does this mean that ethnicity disappears? In Revelation, we have the climactic vision of the consummation of creation, and it suggests a continuation of ethnic diversity, because we see a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we know that ethnicity is acknowledged here, and yet at the same time there is this unity as they're dressed in white robes together. And then later in Revelation, we see that the the various nations are brought into the new Jerusalem. So in light of this, how are we to think about our council when we're talking about ethnicity? First, I wanted to address the counselor. We really need to be aware of our own worldview and our communication style. So I wanted you to think through, did the slides that we reviewed about individualistic and collectivistic cultures help you to become a little more aware of some of your worldviews, as well as to think through how much of it is biblical and how much of it is just something you've kind of lived in and out without really thinking about? And ask yourselves, again, do they come from scripture or from another cultural influence? And we know this is why it's so crucial to both know and to counsel the word, rather than from our own human wisdom. I remember one of the most powerful things in my MABC program was Dr. Ernie Baker's Biblical Conflict Resolution class. And the way it works is that as Christians, we're to be peacemakers, and peace fakers are ones who avoid conflict, which is kind of more of my Japanese side. And then peace breakers tend to be aggressive and get what they want, and that what I would consider more of my American side. And so sometimes when my Japanese side would get frustrated, then I would jump to my American side, and then I could blame it either on my Japanese or American side. 
But this class really convicted me of this is what scripture talks, and this is, I cannot blame either my Japanese or my American culture on my conflict style, that I need to be, follow scripture. And so scripture taught me to be a peacemaker rather than a peace faker or a peace breaker, and I am still growing in that. And then also we want to think about this idea of the incarnation principle or the indigenous principle, or what the secular world would call code switching. It's this idea that we, like Paul, we can become all things to all people, and why do we do this? To save some. We do it for the sake of the gospel that we can share with some of them, share with them and its blessings. And the way this might work for me when I was working in the inner city is when I would sit down with somebody African American, I would say, obviously I'm not black. And they'd say, yeah. And we kind of laugh together. And I would say, I come from a culture that's not as outwardly expressive, but I am a person that feels things very strongly, which is part of why I went into this field. And so there may be some times where you think I might not be feeling you. And if that happens, I hope that we can communicate that because I want you to feel heard here. I want you to feel understood. And I want you to feel like I feel you. And usually it didn't come up a whole lot, but there were a few times where it was. And so just being able to try to bridge that gap and explain where I'm coming and try also to become more expressive there without being false to who I was. Now, coming to the counselee, I have found that this particular worldview is helpful especially for a counselee who could be struggling with issues related to their ethnicity. So the information is that the counselee is dealing with problems associated with their ethnicity or culture. And how I could interpret this is that the counselee, as well as myself, we're living in a fallen world as a sufferer, sinner, and saint in desperate need of Christ. And here, our intervention is the gospel. We're really hoping both for ourselves and the counselee to move towards a worship of the only true and living God, the triune redeemer, because we know that biblical counseling is about helping them to move away from idolatry into true worship of our loving, true and living God. And we know that this is superior to anything the psychologies have to offer. So one of the areas I would want to address is dealing with my counselee as a sufferer. I would want to, to express the reality that we live in this fallen world and that, like Romans 8, the, the creation, the spirit, that we are groaning for this future glory. And so I want to teach her lament leading to worship, that if I were to counsel this young Jen after she'd been chased by a hose or um, humiliated at school by somebody, that if she were weeping, that I would want to hold her tight and probably cry with her and say, yes, this hurts that you were sinned against, and wow, I hurt with you. And then I would want her to know that Jesus knows what it is to be beaten and what it is to be mocked, and he sympathizes with her, and together we can go before his throne of grace in her time of need and in my time of need. I would also want to show her in the Word where other believers have become before his throne of grace and express similar types of pain before God as an act of worship and as one of trust. I would want to teach her that it's not just this undisciplined venting and shaking our fist at God, 
but it is this humble coming before the throne of grace again. And just like with Christ's suffering, there is this biblical hope that comes with it. I would want her to know that God cares about our suffering, that our tears are so precious to him that he holds them in a bottle, that in the olden days, precious things were held in bottles, and that he never afflicts from his heart. She needs to know his character, that he is so present with her, that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with you. In Isaiah 43, 1-7, it starts out, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And it finishes out with, Fear not, I am with you. I really want her to know God as her comforter, that he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, and that as one whom his mother comforts, so God will comfort her. I also want her to know that suffering is necessary for spiritual growth. And I did want to mention that Scott Meal had talked about this morning about how the right truth, a, a good truth at the wrong time is the wrong truth. And so we want to be really cautious of timing of this. But for her to know that suffering is necessary for spiritual growth, that suffering produces endurance, produces character, produces hope, and that hope does not put us to shame, that her ethnicity, that her suffering does not have to put her to shame. And why is this? It's because God's love was poured out into her heart through the Holy Spirit that's been given to her, and that it will help her to rely on God. And then most of all, that she knows that the suffering is going somewhere good, that It is preparing her for this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It is making her into Christ's image that one day there will be no more sorrow, no more tears. Everything will be wiped from her eye and all things will be made new. That this is temporary and it's going somewhere beyond what we can even imagine. This next one is, is tougher, at least for me, but does the counselee recognize him or herself as a sinner in need of grace? And this is something I really struggled with at first in biblical counseling and not necessarily growing up in the conservative world. And now, praise God, that he's shown me how much that I fall short of the glory of God. And the standards are set in the Sermon on the Mount that even if I think of angrily towards my brother that I've murdered him in my heart and that we are level before the foot of the cross. I have to not be like that Pharisee that says, thank God I'm not like those racists. Thank God that I'm not like those extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can I learn to be that where I cannot even look up and pound my breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner? It really took me seeing my sinfulness even after I had accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, to really understand and grasp more deeply my great need for Christ's salvation, not just as forgiveness for my past sins and as this ticket to heaven, but as deliverance from the penalty of sin, as this being delivered from the power of sin and one day being free from the presence of sin. 
It's also knowing that our culture is going to influence our idols, that some cultures will push certain idols more than others. So I wanted to flip to this next slide, and I'm not going to read this quote out loud, but basically what it's saying is that we as human beings tend to seek identity and security as an idolatrous commitment from our cultural groups, and that our leaders tend to demand these idolatrous commitments. I've been reading through Second Kings lately, and it's amazing to me how many kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they made Israel to sin by pointing them to the wrong worship. And so for me, from my Japanese culture, were education, work ethic. So education was to gain knowledge, to understand and solve the problem, and this led to me relying on man instead of God. And then on my American culture, it was equality and justice in the American way. And again, that led me to relying on man instead of on God. I really needed to repent of pride, of this self-righteousness, of this judgmentalism, of owning my own prejudice where I've objectified others based on their exterior exterior appearance and made assumptions about them and really thanking God for his grace and mercy that continues to save me from this inherited sin nature from Adam. And also as the adulteries I mentioned before, repenting of those, and sorry, as it says on the slide, that ethnicity answers, that ethnicity, a lot of times we look to it for identity, belonging, and security. Finally, we want to address the finally we want to address the counselee as a saint. And we want to look at how do they image God. One of the ways that I did this was or one of the ways to think through this is the idea of having biblical discernment. And one of the books that was really helpful for me in terms of social justice is What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And so this idea back to discernment of what is the greatest commandment, it is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second, to love our neighbors as ourselves, as well as the idea of the Great Commission is what is the last thing that Jesus said. And we know that people's last words tend to be very important. And it was the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so it's not a bad thing to try to fight for equality for fellow human beings in love. But is that the thing that I want to spend the bulk of my resources doing? Or can I spend it doing the best thing of sharing the gospel and making disciples of Christ? We know that the gospel is infinitely greater than the temporal things like social equality or worldly riches. And it's, again, not that we ignore evil, but at the same time, we know that humans in a fallen world can never make a perfect society where there's going to be this sort of social equality, especially when there are so many who do not know Christ and those who kind of use Christ for their own agenda. Also as a saint, 
we want them or we want Jen or we want your counselee to grow really in knowing Christ, this gnosis of Christ, not just this intellectual knowledge, but this knowing him with our being and knowing his perfect character. We know that the more that we know God, the more that we're able to love him and trust in him. And there is a wonderful chapter in Jerry Bridges about in the, the book Bear, uh, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. There's a chapter called Trusting God for Who You Are if you have a counselee struggling with some aspect of their ethnicity or how, they, how God might have created them in a specific way. And then also specific attributes that I would want the young gen to know about or someone struggling with their ethnicity. First of all, that God is loving, and I'll kind of come back to that, but especially that God is just, that in Romans 12 we know that it says, beloved, vengeance is mine. That beloved indicates his loving care for us, and that vengeance is mine, that God cares so much about justice. He cared so much about justice that he gave his only son to make sure that justice was satisfied, and so that I can hang my hat down, that even though there may continue to see racism in the world, that someday God is going to make it right, and I can trust in that. Similarly, I can trust in his wisdom and sovereignty in making me the ethnicity that he made me. Also, as a saint, again, the great commandment to love, that can she come against her enemies in love, as we know from 1 Corinthians 13, as it looks in 1 Corinthians 13. Can she be compelled by the love of Christ rather than out of anger, shame, alienation, pride, anything else? Can the aim of her charge be love? And can she not be overcome by evil, but become overcome evil with good? And helping her through Romans 12, 9 through 21, or 1 Corinthians 13, about what love looks like. And I also found David Pallison's Good and Angry book, Redeeming Anger, Irritation, Complaining, and Bitterness, that he talked about how do we respond with the constructive displeasure of mercy. So that might be another way of we don't just ignore anger, but how do we constructively respond to it in a merciful way that gives grace to the person and glorifies and honors God. Finally, I want to help her think through, as a saint, that God created her with a specific ethnicity, and how might she steward it? And so for me, as I stand here now, I'm not defined by my ethnicity, and at the same time, it is a part of who God made me to be, and it's to be stewarded for his kingdom. And so some of the ways that I've started to realize, even as going through this presentation and preparing for it, that it's made me sensitive to the suffering of others, that it's made me more able to offer the comfort that God has offered me, and it's for their salvation. It's also helped me to be aware of differing worldviews, and it's given me experience in attempting to cross these bridges in these worldviews. This journey has really helped me in terms of greater spiritual discernment and pointing to the true hope of the gospel rather than temporary things on this earth. And then finally, it's truly given me a keen yearning for the lost. So as I mentioned, my ethnic background is Japanese-American, and it's given me a keen sense of um, 
it's given me a keen desire that the Japanese be saved and that less than 1% are Christian, 97.8 of the Japanese are unreached, and that 23 out of the 36 people groups in, in Japan are unreached. And I was so relieved to actually see this passage in Scripture in Romans 9. And as one of my pastors mentioned, it, it, it follows Romans 8 where Paul talks about nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ. And then he jumps into that I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he has this for his unsaved brothers and sisters that he's to the point where he wishes himself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That if for me, that one of the things that being Japanese-American has done is given me this keen yearning and followed in Paul and, and, and known that from a deep level. So my current worldview is now that my information is that I have an ethnicity, though it's not my defining identity. My interpretation is that God created me, including my ethnicity, in a sovereignty and providence. And now the intervention is to engage God in my suffering as it might relate to my ethnicity and other things, to repent in my sin, to work out my salvation with fear and trembling as I steward my life, including my ethnicity, for God's kingdom and for God's glory, and my worship moving away from my idolatries and to the triune redeemer. So in closing, I really wanted to talk about my full identity in Christ through two passages, and I'm not going to go deeply into 1 Corinthians 12, but 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 21, it talks about being one body with many members. And so it's 1 Corinthians, we know, is about correcting sinful behavior, and one of the sins in the Corinthian church was division. So in this passage, Paul reminds us that the body has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. That there's different parts of the body, and they function in different ways, and the goal is to work together. That there isn't this uniformity or blindness to difference. It's not expected. But we know that unity is crucial for the parts to be able to work together. I wanted to finish with Ephesians. And in Ephesians, Paul first writes about our spiritual blessings in Christ and then our new life by faith and grace. And then we have this passage here about being one in Christ and what Christ did for our union, Satan wants to divide. Without the gospel, I know from this passage that I'm separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But in Christ, I've been brought near by his blood, made one in the body of Christ. The dividing wall of hostility broken down in his flesh, Jews and Gentiles both reconciled to God in one body through the Christ, through the cross. So then, I am no longer a stranger or an alien, but I'm a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. And again, 
I no longer need to be ashamed or alienated, angry or prideful due to my ethnicity. It's because of the gospel that my ultimate identity is in Christ. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.